previously on The Everyday Marksman. You need to be able to operate under pressure, but we can't shoot at you for real. So the next best thing is getting into high pressure situations and competition does that. If you want the best weapon handling skills and marksmanship skills, you need to shoot competition. That's one of the things I really like about PRS is that we all kind of work together. Nobody, everybody wants to win, but they want to win because they beat you, not because you beat yourself or you had a problem. You've got to set your ego aside and realize that everybody there that's shooting well was once you. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 50 of The Everyday Marksman. I'm your host, Matt Robertson. And this is a podcast all about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. Our website is everydaymarksman.co, and there you're going to find all of our show notes, our social links, our articles, our blogs, and our awesome community of marksmen. I'm glad you could join me today. It has been a while. The last time you heard from me was back in April 2021, and it's like a nice summer off to relax, think about direction of things, and really buckle down to do some new stuff and, and uh, I feel recharged I feel refreshed and ready to get back on this bandwagon and producing content for you and I hope you enjoy it so in today's episode we're going to go over the PRS rimfire match that I shot recently going through a bit of an after action review some lessons learned about shooting in a PRS match at all especially a rimfire one um, and I think it's going to be really really cool to get to talk about now before we get into that what I want to do is talk about a marksman story. Now, today's story comes from Alex. Now, he's been a longtime reader and subscriber to the site, and I want to go into what he sent as far as his experience with an M1, and I think it's just really neat. And he says his first shooting experience happened courtesy of his dad and his uncle on a Thanksgiving break his junior year of high school. His uncle came up from Texas since he lived in Colorado at the time and brought one of his M1 Garands. I love mine as well. Now, he'd been enamored with that rifle ever since reading his grandfather's collection of old World War II magazines, watching Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, all the greats. Now, this was back in 2001 or so for context, and about 100 rounds into a Osama bin Laden target, he knew he had to have an M1. I know that feeling. <laughs> Ten years later, he found the 1954 production rifle that he now owns, but it would take about two more years before he truly understood the capability that the thing had. Again, courtesy of his uncle and friend of his, he took that M1 and scored the longest range hits of his life. No optics, just the rifle, stock, iron sights, and an El Cheapo 1907 sling. The target was a cardboard B27 silhouette, black on a white background, in the late afternoon on a fall Texas day. Now the target... Once verified with the rangefinder was six, sorry, 562 yards away. It was buried in scrub oak with cow and low-hanging power lines all around. And when he only scored four hits out of those 32 rounds, the experience just stuck with him. He had never shot beyond 100 yards, and to be able to find four of those 30 caliber holes in that target just felt immensely satisfying. Now, furthermore, he says that his uncle and him found Many misses within a 10-foot radius of the target. You know, they marked those up by kicked up dirt and broken branches. The big takeaway was that he could do it. He could hit a target that looks so small against those sights. 
even on a low light at the end of the day. He could hit what he could see. Now he can do it with that rifle and a sighting system that was close to 60 years old at the time. Now that he knows he can, he can't escape the itch to do it again. Alex, thank you for sending me your story. Um, you know, this resonates with me because this is really close to my first experience where I got to fire a Springfield 1903, and I think I hit even less than you did at 100 yards. Um, but it is really neat, and I like this story too because it's going to speak to something I learned at this rimfire match that I shot um, this recently on September 4th. And it's just showing you that, yes, yes, you can do this with just a little bit of practice and patience and knowing yourself and your rifle. So thank you for submitting your story, Alex. I hope uh, you, the reader, get to enjoy this one as well. If you want to submit your own story, go to everydaymarksman.co forward slash story and share yours with me. Share it with the crowd. I'll be sure to to put it out there. All, all the best ones. Now with that, Let's get into the Rimfire match. We've got quite a bit to talk about. Starting route to Peacemaker National Training Center. Now it's an hour and a half drive from my house to Peacemaker National where this match is being held. So I had quite a bit of time to stop and think about what led me to this match and how I got here. Now it's not a surprise. I've been interested in doing precision rifle shooting since at least 2012 where I started building my very first bolt action uh, and then 308 is how a 1500. Um, but that's not what's important here. What is kind of dragged me off a track from that was that I moved from Montana to California and didn't really have opportunities. So I started focusing more on action shooting and really looking into my fundamentals of marksmanship. And that got me to the early days of the everyday marksman. Now, this particular journey really starts in about early 2020 when I interviewed Mike Keenan about getting involved in PRS matches. I had wanted to do it, but didn't really know where to start. And I thought he was a good resource. That led me to start writing about the benefits of doing things with a 22 long rifle because it is so ballistically inefficient, it works pretty well as a stand-in for 308 long range. Little did I know that as the pandemic would pick up over 2020, ammo prices would be ridiculous and I would be less inclined to go shoot anything center fire. But I sure did shoot a lot of 22 with my Tika T1X, which became my competition rifle. So then over 2020, I kept practicing at relatively short ranges, but working on the rifle, the optics, the fundamentals, I collected gear around you know, shooting bags and wrist boards and things I thought I would use for a PRS match. And then finally, in June of 2021, this year, I got the opportunity to sign up for my very first PRS Rimfire match. And of course, I was going to do everything I could to prepare for it. I had a whole master plan about dry firing 10 to 15 minutes every day, practicing my position building. And I will tell you now, <laughs> that didn't happen the way I thought it was going to go. Because I honestly didn't know what to prepare for. In 2.6 miles, turn left onto McCubbin's Hollow Road. 
So I'll admit that the entire hour and a half drive, as I was sipping on my coffee early in the morning, I was feeling quite a bit anxious, not knowing who I was going to be competing against, how I was going to do, how they were going to do, and if I was going to totally embarrass myself in the field of competitors. Now, luckily, that's not what happened. (laughs) What happened at all? The destination is on your right. Peacemaker National Training Center. Arrived. Now, Peacemaker is the largest shooting facility on the East Coast of the United States. It has 17 ranges on it, everything from pistol to skeet trap to tactical shooting and long range, like we spent a lot of time during this match. And when I arrived, it was a really nice, cool September Saturday morning. I think I got there right around 8.15 in the morning. It was a nice, steady, steady 65 degrees, um, looking like it was going to be a really nice day. So we gathered around after I paid my initial entry fee, got my wristband and drove back up to the staging area and I got to hang around for a little while. And I noticed a few things about those around me. Almost everybody who was there knew each other. It was like old friends getting together to go go have fun, which I thought was a really, really cool feel. And then the match director arrived and started telling us all how the day was going to run. Hey, a couple quick safety notes and then a couple of operational notes. Welcome to the Lapwood Precision Rimfire, September match, total of nine stages plus one side stage. The side stage does not count for your match score. Now, as you heard him say, this was nine stages throughout the day, and there's only three divisions. There was bolt action, semi-auto, and youth. And to be honest, I had some concerns about this because I shot in bolt action, and within that, there was zero distinction between somebody who showed up with an off-the-shelf budget rimfire rifle and budget scope and somebody who was shooting a $5,000 custom 22 rifle. And I thought that honestly was going to be unfair. Um, But as I found out throughout this whole event, that actually wasn't that big of an effect because it really came down to shooter skill. Firearms will be kept in a safe condition. Magazines out, bolts open, chamber flags inserted, except when the competitor is on the line and directed to load and make ready. Now let's talk about how scoring works at a PRS match because this was totally new to me compared to anything else I've ever shot before. If you're accustomed to any kind of action shooting like you would see in USPSA or IDPA or Outlaw, then you know it's all about the clock. And the goal is to have the lowest time possible. When you start the stage, then you shoot it, and then whatever your time is to complete the stage is your base score. Now, once you have your base score, they look at your targets and they start they start adding time for every less accurate shot you had you know, outside the A zone, B zone, C zone, or total misses. So the combined score is your base score plus any seconds added on for reduced accuracy. In PRS, uh-uh, not, not how this one worked. In this match, with the exception of one stage, everything was 90 seconds par time. Now, what did that mean? It means that when the match starts or when the round starts, you have 90 seconds to complete the stage or, or expend all your shots. If the clock runs out, then you are done. However many hits you have by that point is your score for the stage. And then that's it. You know, every stage typically had a shot limit. You have you know, eight shots, 10 shots, 12 shots, 13 shots, depending on how many targets there were to hit. So when the clock ran out, whoever, however many targets you hit, that was your score. And 
the best score of the day wins. Now, this didn't have any kind of standard with it, like A zone or B zone. If you if you hit the target, you were good. And targets were everything from like little four inch circles placed at two hundred yards to sixteen inch targets placed at three hundred and fifty yards uh, and more. It was kind of all over the place. As long as you hit it, you got a point. The one exception was a single stage where your total score was the number of hits you did and how long it took you to do it. Uh, so in that case, being faster was better. And that was going to be used as a tiebreaker. If two competitors had the exact same point totals throughout the day, then fastest time won. So after the safety brief, we all packed up ourselves and headed down to meet up with our squad and start the very first stage. So let's talk about that. The very first stage that my squad had to shoot was stage number six, ELR, or extremely long range. This stage only had two targets. One was 357 yards and one was at 393 yards. Both targets were about 16 inches square. And this was intimidating because when I ran all the numbers for my particular load, I was shooting my Tika T1X with Lapua Center X ammunition at 350 yards, I'm looking at about 17.4 mils of compensation for, for drop. Now, in context, for a 308, that's the equivalent of about 1,500 yards or almost a mile shot. That's how much drop we're dealing with with this little inefficient 22. Now, the way the stage worked was of these two targets, you were allowed 10 total shots. You had to shoot target one first, and you had up to five hits on target number one. Then you went to target number two, and however many hits you had on target number one, that's how many attempts you were allowed at target number two. So let's say theoretically, you're shooting at target number one, and you miss once out of your first uh, first group of shots, but you hit it on that sixth shot. Well, now you have five hits but you only have four shots left to attempt at target number two. So this became a whole strategic game with yourself about how many attempts do you make on the closer one to get easier points than to go for the longer one. And I got seven. Uh, I was pretty happy with that because for my very first stage and my very first ever precision rifle match, um, that was intimidating. And I learned an important lesson out of this one. And it was something that persisted out through the rest of the match that just kept repeating to myself and my squad mates. And that is... Trust the math. Because you see, I'm so used to using battle site zeros and BDCs and doing things for speed. I've never competed in a way where I have to dial my elevation turret from target to target in order to make the hits I need to make. And it worked. As long as you have good ballistic data about your rifle, the cartridge, and you know your zero, I can't overemphasize that one enough, that you know your zero, then your calculations will tell you, you need 13.2 mils, you need 7.8 mils, and when you dial it, it works. The math does its job. So that was a really important thing. So let's talk about some of the other lessons learned out of this event. So number one, trust the math, like I just said. Um, number two is that your equipment is nice. It does not make up for poor fundamentals. And in fact, I remember Russ Miller telling me this way back in my, like my second or third interview for this podcast. The equipment has to be good in the sense that it has to function reliably. Don't think that you need to get the best, most accurate, super-duper turbocharged gun. You don't. 
And as it turns out, Russ's advice was absolutely spot on. So while I was shooting a Tika T1X in an Oryx chassis with an Athlon chronoscope, which I would say relative to the field was kind of middle of the ground, there were folks out there who were shooting kind of off-the-shelf Savage rifles with, with Vortex kind of budget optics. And there was people out there shooting Night Force optics on top of, you know, Anschutz rifles. Uh, and what I noticed was that for the most part, the how good someone's gear was did not correlate to how good they did in the match. Um, what did matter was how well and they were able to quickly build a stable position. Now, what contributes to that, aside from crutching yourself with additional bags and gear and things that you can build it out, is that I found for myself the fact that I practice so much with traditional marksmanship, getting kneeling, squatting, standing, prone, and building up those positions just using my body really did help me when it came to improvising other positions. In fact, I absolutely drilled one stage where the first part of it was shooting at four, about three inch targets at 40 yards from a standing offhand position. And I was one of the best ones in my squad with that, while somebody else who had a very expensive, nice rifle missed almost every shot because he just never practiced traditional marksmanship. So gear is nice. Gear can help you, but it's not going to make up if you don't have good, solid marksmanship fundamentals. Now, on that note, let's talk about gear itself. If I had to pick two pieces of equipment, we'll say three, three things that I think when I go shoot another one of these matches that I know these are the three things I'm going to have to have aside from my rifle and scope, but three things. Number one is a good, versatile shooting bag. I was using a Wee Bad Fortune Cookie Mini, um, but the Game Changer was also a really popular one that I've heard a lot of people talk about. I saw that one out there too. Uh, number two would be a wrist board or some way track my dope. Uh, for those of you who follow the site, then you know recently before this match, I published a whole article about here is my custom dope cards. And I made three dope cards for myself spanning from 50 yards to 500 yards worth of drop. And you know how many times I used those in the match? Zero. <laughs> because as it turns out, when they sent out the stages ahead of time the night before, I was able to plug in every stage, look at the numbers, and then calculate with my calculator, my ballistic calculator, for every target, what is my exact drop? How much do I have to dial the turret? So then I went into the match knowing those notes. So instead of actually opening up my little wrist board where I could look at my dope cards, I slapped some masking tape on the top. And for every stage, I just threw the tape on there and I wrote down target one, 397 yards. That is 18.2 mils of drop. And I would just write that on the, write that on the, on the tape. End of the stage, rip the tape off, put tape on for the next stage and do it that way. Way faster. A lot of folks were even had little car, like little plaques on their rifles where they could slap that tape onto a little plaque on the rifle and then they could read it as they were doing the stage. It seemed very helpful. So number one was at least one versatile shooting bag. Number two is, is just a piece of tape, somewhere to stick tape to track your dope. And number three would be a sling. Not everybody used a sling for this one, but I did. I brought along a tactical sling uh, with a bungee in the rear. And what I found was in especially the standing stages and the kneeling ones where I had to balance against the barrier, having the sling added just a, a little extra amount of tension to pull the rifle into my shoulder and help stabilize things uh, just a bit. So not super urgent to have it, but really handy to have. Now, there were other people out there who brought multiple bags of all kinds. Uh, at one stage where we were sitting on, literally sitting on a toilet, and you had to keep two feet on the ground, and then you had to hit 10 targets off in the distance from sitting on this toilet, and these were small targets. Uh, I improvised 
by crossing my leg up and doing kind of an improvised sitting position. Whereas another competitor who did very well in the match, he stacked a bunch of bags on his lap and budgeted them in place and use it like a giant rifle rest. Hey, really creative. And it worked. And he, in, in that was awesome. I did just as well as he did, which gets me to another point here is that, uh, and I believe this is something Mike Keenan said in his interview, the competitors all really friendly and willing to share their equipment. So that one competitor who stacked those bags up on his lap with a bungee cord to use the giant rifle rest, he let everybody else in the squad who wanted to use that setup, he just said, yeah, go ahead and use it. At the very first stage, when everybody found that I was the new guy, uh, they immediately offered, hey, do you need a bag? Do you have everything you need? Do you have this? Do you have that? I didn't need anything, but it was really cool that they were willing to jump in and help out. So if you are interested in shooting a match like this, don't let your lack of having all the whiz gadgets get in the way. People really do want to help you out and see you succeed. So let's talk about the three things I think went wrong for me throughout this match and things I, I think I know I can fix in the future. So number one was timing. I really wasn't paying that close attention to the clock. Instead, I was focusing on get my fundamentals right, hit my target, and move on to the next target. And that's what I did. Unfortunately, that also meant that several times I just simply ran out of my 90 seconds and I was stopped mid-stage or, or you know, about two-thirds of the way into it. Um, lesson learned. I think it's more important to actually put in your fundamentals and hit the targets and then run out of time than it is to speed through a stage and miss your targets because you didn't learn from it. And in fact, the one stage where I probably did the worst was the one that was actually timed where how long you took to do the stage was a factor in your final score. I did the worst there. I stopped focusing on doing the right things and just kind of rushed through it and I paid for it. Now on that, I also had an issue with malfunctions in my rifle that also cost me time. So as it turns out, the TKT-1X is fairly sensitive to how you load the magazine, you know, load the ammo into the magazine. If there's any kind of upward angle on a, on a cartridge you didn't see before, it can get jammed up like a stovepipe. So that was an issue for me. It happened several times, and what ended up fixing it later on was, was two things, paying more attention to how I loaded rounds into the magazine, as well as lubrication on the bolt itself. Didn't occur to me, but bolt actions also need lubrication and I was running almost dry as soon as I did that no more problems the rest of the day and then lesson number three things that went wrong for me related to malfunctions and my timing was reloads I did not actually have a way to carry my spare magazines so I was just shoving them down in a pocket now if I was standing at a stage and reloading from my pocket generally okay but as soon as I was sitting kneeling sitting on a toilet going prone Having to fish out a magazine from my pocket was actually really slow. And I often lost five, 10 seconds by doing that. And there are several stages I think I would have done better had I had an actual pouch on my belt to quickly grab that magazine and feed it. So there we go. There's my three big lessons. Now, the last thing here is how did I do? Well, pretty well. For my very first PRS match ever, I finished right about middle of the pack. And I ended up walking home with a prize to send my rifle off to Lapua to have them do batch testing and pick the most accurate batch of ammo for my rifle. And then they'd let me buy 5,000 rounds of it. So awesome. Happy to win something that wasn't the goal. But man, I want to go back and do it again. And I hope you get to also because shooting competition is a huge benefit to you. As many of my guests have said in the past, competition is the best way to polish your skills in marksmanship and weapons handling. You're not going to be able to do that anywhere else at this level 
With such a group, he was so awesome and friendly to give you advice and help you out along the way. I've never seen it anywhere else. So there you have it. My lessons learned from my very first PRS Rimfire match. Shout out to Peacemaker National Training Facility for putting it together. I can't wait to go back. And also a shout out to Lapua for sponsoring the event. I really do want to get back there and do some more. If you enjoyed this episode, I did things a little bit differently here with some more music and background sound effects. Make sure you let me know. Come up by the website at everydaymarksman.co. Find this episode and leave a comment. While you're there, I would appreciate if you could hit that big green subscribe button. Give me your email, your name. Trust me. Or <laughs> don't worry, I don't spam you with emails. Uh, I just let you know when I have new posts up. And if you really enjoy what's going on today and what I'm doing here, come on by everydaymarksman.co forward slash support and support the site. That is it for me. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week and I will catch you next time.